Welcome to this week's episode of Rock Album Analysts. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is uh, John Carson. And today we are rejoined by special guest guitarist Mike Gavigan. Hi, everyone, and uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in uh, this week's uh, album analysis. It was a, I had a great time last week, and it's an honor to be invited back. So good to see you guys and good to talk to you guys. Yeah, so before we, yeah. Get, before we get into it, um, our little podcast hit a few milestones. Uh, we got 1,000 plays or streams or whatever you want to call it, and uh, Anchor estimates our audience at 200-plus now. We've got listeners primarily in the United States, but we've also got some in Ireland, the UK, Italy, Canada, Australia, Sweden, Argentina, Germany, Greece, the Philippines, Russia, the Cayman Islands, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, Ecuador, Mexico, New Zealand, Panama, and Brazil. Oh, wow. It's time to go on tour, guys. I know. <laughs> right? Hey, that is internationally acclaimed, and that is the world and elsewhere. So wonderful. Right. Exactly. Good to hear it. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, a um, couple of things about last week's podcast. We were talking about that line, The Sailor's Only Daughter. And as I was doing research to talk about Love Gun, uh, I found uh, Paul mentions in his book that he was inspired by a song uh, by a band called Looking Glass called Brandy that he says is about a sailor's daughter. So I went oh, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I looked yeah. that song up. And interestingly enough, it is about a girl who works in a bar in a port where lots of sailors come in and fall in love with her and she's given her heart to some sailor that will never return but it does not actually mention the fact in the song that she is supposedly a sailor's daughter so either that was something that paul just misremembered or conflated in his mind but um yeah that's not in the song huh. i like wow. that song too yeah i didn't know okay that's all coming together now yeah so another interesting thing when i originally put up the uh you know, I, I put up the album cover on the Facebook page for uh, for the album that we're analyzing that week. And I happened to, I put up the graphic for Rock and Roll Over. I mistakenly put it up upside down, apparently, because the first uh, image that I grabbed just happened to have Ace and Peter on top instead of Paul and Gene. And I heard from Dennis Woolock, <laughs> who's oh, yes. the Kiss right. album designer from all for all the Kiss albums from Alive uh, through Crazy Nights. And he told me it's upside down. So I, of course, immediately apologized and fixed that. And I said, thank you so much for the correction, sir. You would know, wouldn't you? <laughs> but see, that doesn't make any sense because that's a—I mean, as an art teacher, that's something I wanted to talk about, and I figured no one wanted to talk about it. But it's a—it's a mandala, meaning it comes out. It's a type of balance that comes out from the center, which is a one of the most spiritual um, balances. There's three three types of balance in art: symmetric, asymmetric, and radial. And radial is. See, I'm already boring you, but no, it, it comes no, no, no. Out, it comes out from the center, and it, the circle is the most recognized human image and it also makes all things equal inside the circle so i actually thought that that was pretty clever but i kept my mouth shut because i was like no one's going to want to talk about that so but i guess the designer would actually know yeah apparently gene and paul are meant to be on top and it was important enough to him that he mentioned it to us so you know wow. thank you for that dennis <laughs> yeah that's awesome yeah so before we get into the meat of analyzing love gun um 
let's uh, let's play some songs by the guys on the podcast here, just in case you're wondering if we actually know what we're talking about and know how to make a little rock and roll ourselves. So, uh, John, tell us a little bit about uh, your song. This song is called Don't You Ever Mention My Name. This is by The Little Wretches. It is one of our uh, heavier, more rockin' songs. Um, it's just about uh, growing up in Pittsburgh and, you know, uh, well, in basically in America, I guess, but in Pittsburgh specifically, um, and how you make friends, and sometimes you don't make friends, and that kind of stuff. Shut that baby up, lock him in his room, teach him to be quiet, but he grows so soon. You grow so fast on your place, little child. You die before you grow because the other become wild. You better get off the tracks, here comes the train. It was nice to get acquainted, but don't you ever mention my name. The women wear wigs and the men wear cologne. They keep the dog outside to protect their home. The kids are well dressed and they're always in style. They die before they grow because the unknown become wild. You better get off the tracks, here comes the train. It was nice to get acquainted, but don't you ever mention my name. Down on the trains. Under the tracks, there's three cans left from my four six pack. I pulled this liquor from my old man's stash when it chops my nuts, baby. We're born to crash. Better get on the tracks, here comes the train. Cause it was not to get acquainted, but don't you ever mention my name. Take my lungs, the bitter with the sweet Losing doesn't bother me I just don't like it in be God don't mind a sinner, baby But now he's used to that But God can't stand a traitor, baby If you want to do an introduction for uh, your band song. Absolutely. Thank you, Dave. Uh, last week we played a song from a uh, release that came out last week. Uh, the name of the band is Frankie and the Honeybees. This is an album that we recorded a couple of years back and it was just released. And uh, we're looking at several singles for the record. And one of the potential singles for the next one would be a song 
Oh, you're my everything. Pretty rock and tune again. Um, lots of fun tones from old uh, airline amplifiers and uh, really, uh, if you want to call it like a mouth-watering uh, crybaby solo um, that I'm really proud of. It's it's very inspired by you know people like Mark Ford and Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and. Again, I'm just proud of the work we're doing this record, and um, looking to looking forward at some point to you know playing some live shows behind it. And uh, there you go, Frankie and Honeybees, you're my everything. <laughs> some great guitar tones on that for sure uh again the uh engineer mike stromso he he's had it down as a matter of fact mike worked with frank uh years ago in the 80s uh, frank's been in bands he was in a band called the graveyard train that was signed to geffen when everybody was signed to geffen um, and he knows uh, mike from that long ago so nice <laughs> small nice. world but yeah good good to have good people in your pockets that we need to uh when you need to get some good tones down for sure cool and then this is Am I a Warrior? And if you get a chance, check out the video for it. You can find it on Facebook or YouTube. And uh, it's, it's sort of a timely song. So this is Am I a Warrior by Dame Fortune.
All right. So uh, the album this week is Love Gun, and it's kind of fortuitous in a way. Uh, the rock world lost one of its all-time legends this week. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, tragically dead at age 65. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a fan of Van Halen or not. Uh, there was rock guitar before Eddie Van Halen came along, and there was rock guitar after, and the two were not the same. Um, you know, he was such an inspiration to legions of guitar players um, and had such an incredible cutting-edge technique, but also such an amazing musicality that he used that technique with that I don't think we'll we'll ever see another player uh, quite like him. Often imitated, never duplicated, and highly relevant to the album Love Gun because Gene Simmons discovered the band Van Halen uh, right around this time, right around the time they were recording Love Gun. And he went and took them and recorded some demos and made them an offer. He said, listen, if I can get you guys a record deal with these demos, uh, then we'll make that happen. If for some reason I can't get it, I will cut you loose. You don't owe me anything. And um, he recorded their first demos. He couldn't get anything happening with it, even though at this time, KISS was the number one band in the world. You would think if anybody could get anything happening for a band like Van Halen, yeah. uh, it would be him in that position. But, you know, I think they were they had such a cutting-edge sound. Uh, they were so far ahead of their time in a lot of ways. People didn't necessarily know what to make of them, and it took, uh, it took a little bit longer for them to achieve the the heights that they would then go on to. However, Gene Simmons did take Eddie and Alex into the studio in New York to record a couple demos for songs that would appear on this album, Love Gun. So Love Gun is the sixth and final uh, classic Kiss studio album featuring all four of the original lineup on all the tracks. Um, it's kind of the sister album to Rock and Roll Over in that it was uh, produced by Eddie Kramer. Instead of recording the live feel in a the theater, they actually went to New York and recorded in Electric Lady. And uh, in about three weeks, they had an album that in some ways combined the best of Rock and Roll Over with a little bit more of the production sheen of Destroyer. And uh, by that, I mean, you know, there's... There's more effects. There's there's a little more polish. There's uh, you've got female backing vocals. You've got keyboards. You've got a little bit more happening in terms of the effects. Um, but it really is probably the last Kiss album that that has a little bit of that New York attitude, New York swagger, as well. Um, Kiss had just finished their most successful tour of their career at that point. And if you look at attendance, possibly their most successful tour ever, because Rock and Roll Over had something like a 98% sell-through for all the seats. So almost every single show was sold out on this tour. Um, and then they went in the studio for three weeks to record Love Gun. So track one, I Stole Your Love. Mike? 
It's a great opening track. It's one of those songs that just you could tell that was destined to be an album opener and also uh, maybe a live set opener. Um, he just got the energy. And I think at some point, uh, Paul had referenced uh, a song by Deep Purple uh, known as Burn. And it's, I think, it's in a different key, but it's a similar type of riff, which is, again, one of Deep Purple's greatest songs uh, later in their career where they had uh, Glenn Hughes uh, in the band and David Coverdale uh, in the band doing vocals. Uh, it's just, again, it's a great song, great riff, high energy. Uh, again, cool that in terms of the uh, guitar solo, you start off with a really typical, not to, I shouldn't say typical, but the classic uh, melodic Paul Stanley you know, intro solo, and then that leads into Ace doing his thing, and it's a great segue. Um, and I just had a, you know, a couple of questions to, you know, to, the, to the former, if you will. Sure. Uh, one thing is, if then has anybody heard during in, in the chorus there seems to be like this high because the song's in C sharp there's like this high C sharp note that is in the background in the choruses that I can never figure out is that a guitar or an ebo or a keyboard if anybody's heard that let me know but then the second thing is too if you compare the album track to the way they play it live uh, on the studio version there's a consistent I think it's a 16 note uh, hi hat that's going on but live peter would be doing you know, two hands on the, the, the toms during mm. the verses so is is the you know, the potential there for the uh that 16th note thing to be uh, an overdub for the record i had heard that there is piano on the album that eddie kramer actually was it eddie kramer that actually played piano on certain parts yeah he's definitely yeah, playing on, on a couple yeah. of cuts and, and i th i think i've i've heard that i heard that too i just thought that was like uh, what's the word called? Uh, harmonics, you know what I mean, or something like that. That I was hearing. But I do think I do think it's an ebo because uh, Paul has talked about the fact this is right when he started experimenting with ebos, and I can hear him on Love Gun too. Um, yeah, I think you know they're even more prevalent on his '78 solo album. But uh, for those who don't know, an, an ebo is kind of a little handheld magnetic device that one uh, puts directly above the string, above the pickups, and it causes a magnetic resonance. Uh, it, it makes the strings essentially vibrate kind of endlessly, and it, it produces a uh, almost like a, a violin um, mm -hmm. kind of uh, effect for one string at a time. You can, in the studio, you can obviously do that on multiple tracks on multiple uh strings and you can make these kind of keyboard like sounding chords uh and i do believe i do believe you're right mike i i do think that's what's going on here um it's interesting though paul paul says the word guitar in i stole your love right before he goes into the first part of the solo <laughs> which yeah. is a little funny considering that's usually done to signal the other guitar player that it's time right. to start yeah. the solo but um yeah wake up it's time to solo yeah right so, right yeah. right um you know lyrically i think the song probably owes a bit to songs like uh, under my thumb by the rolling stones uh it's all it's all about as they say on that seinfeld episode it's all about who has hand in the power dynamic of the relationship, right? Yeah. So, um, I would say it's a, it's a barnstormer. Um, you know, it, it certainly it sets the template for the album in that you have these great harmonized vocals calling and responsing with the lead vocal. Um, you know, Paul's voice on this album, particularly on the higher uh, register songs, 
sounds a little raw to me, you know, um, like I think it's probably the fact that he's singing right at the edge of his range. Um, and at the time, his, his vocal technique probably wasn't, you know, what it would later become in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, where he could hit those kinds of notes effortlessly. I remember reading Eddie Kramer would have him like literally stand on a ladder um, sometimes to try to get him to be able to hit those top notes. And you can hear that tension in his voice on, on this track for sure. Yeah, he he definitely sounds he sounds like he's pushing himself, which actually is what makes it great. That I Stole Your Love is one of my favorite Kiss songs ever, uh, just because it's got so much swagger in it. Yeah. Uh, in terms of that that opening rift and the you know the way that he delivers the lines, he's starting to get that sort of almost um, uh, I don't I don't know how to explain it, like almost like evangelical or Robert Plantish, you know. Um, way of singing you know what i mean it's a lot more i don't the only word that i can come up with is swagger you know it, it, it's it's the first this is one of the first kiss albums where things start to um you know they start to almost have more of a rhythm to it. it's less sort of like this is just plain old um rockabilly but instead it starts to feel like it's having um or not rockabilly but just plain rock and roll like it's almost starting to feel like it has a little bit of a funk or a little bit of a groove to it so at any rate, I'm just saying it's it's def, it's one of my all-time favorite Kiss songs. Um, just his delivery and and the way that the uh, riff comes and how, the speed of it and the fact that it has more of a groove to it than necessarily just a straight eight kind of vibe to it. Yeah, it's a barnstormer for sure. And in fact, they did use it to open up a lot of the shows, I believe. Uh huh. I've heard that. I, yeah. What isn't that played in like a billion tours or something like that? It's one of my favorite ones on the live too, as well. Yeah, I think it was uh, played from the beginning of the uh, Love Gun tour uh, from the get-go. Yeah. It's, again, interesting to open to, you know, a, a song to an audience that may or may not have purchased the most recent album. Again, it's, it's a, such a bold move to say, okay, this is our new album, we're going to embrace it, we're going to come up right out of the gate and play a, a song from the new album. Take it or leave it. And it's not even a single. You know? Right, right. It was the B-side, actually, of, of a single. But we'll get into that. Okay, so speaking of things that were singles... Uh, the first single off the album was Christine 16. Mike, your thoughts? Uh, it, it's a catchy tune, you know. I mean, despite you know what you might think of some of the lyric content these days, you know, granted these are different times, um, but it, it's a catchy tune. And I've always loved the fact that, you know, we've all discussed the fact that, um, you know, Kiss always has this behind-the-beat kind of approach to, to writing music that not a lot of other bands, I'd probably say you know, very few other bands have done. Um, when it comes in, the count is a certain way, but then when the band kicks in, it's a whole different thing. It's totally unexpected. And then they come in and it, make, it totally makes sense. Uh, but again, you know, I think it's funny, too, with this song. Uh, there's a story that I guess um, uh, I think Paul Stanley had supposedly, you know, quote unquote, stolen the title Black Diamond from Gene Simmons. And in this case, I think, you know, Paul Stanley had a line like Christine 16, ha ha. And you know, Gene Simmons probably thought, OK, I can write a song around that. And he apparently did. Uh, but again, it, it's, it's a great song. It's catchy. Uh, the, you know, the great uh, harmonized solo uh, that Ace did um, is cool. And that's, um, that's pretty much the, note for note uh, what Eddie Van Halen played on the demo, isn't it? From what we've read, yeah, yeah, from what we've read, yeah. But um, and, I, and again, because this was a single, I found I did some research on this too. There are several versions of this as a single, where there's a, a longer version of Christine 16, there's a shorter version, 
you know, I haven't yet, you know, determined what the differences are, but uh, there are existing versions of the song in different uh, edits, which are probably good for you know, radio formats. But again, great tune from Gene. Um, I kind of miss the person. I think I'd love to hear it uh, live again. I think the last time I heard it was um, on the reunion tour in '96 at uh, Dodger Stadium. Uh, but I don't, I don't think they, I think they just played it on that tour for that night only, and they, they never played it again. But great song, John. Yeah, um, it's creepy as all get out, but I find it to be like a perfect uh, pop song. You know what I mean? Like it's a very well written, almost pop song, even with the ridiculous voiceover that uh, Gene does about you know why I have to have you know what I mean? It's 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 very um, it's just a very good. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that whole voiceover thing completely reminds me of something from like, say, the 50s, the big bopper. Right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's what I think they were going for. But again, it doesn't devolve into sort of just cliches. I mean, at least it's an interesting subject matter, albeit a little bit weird. Um, but the chorus is neat. It's a neat phrase. You know, it's I I like the song. I mean, I won't admit that you know, to anybody else because it's <laughs> one of their creepier songs. But, um, you know, it's it's definitely, like, catchy, and I like it. Yeah, it, it's a little problematic. I mean, Gene was 28 when he wrote it. Now, granted, they, they were just changing the uh, statutory rape laws in a lot of places in the country around then. So, you know, I don't know if you guys have seen that uh, documentary about um, – this band that played at Tomorrowland that was kind of like a cross between Kiss and Star Wars. Um, but no. Okay. I'll, no. I, I have to look up the, the name of it. It's the, it, I can't even think of the name, um, but it's, it's this band. They, they only played for like one season, like right around 1980. And uh, I'm sure if had I seen them in 1980, they would have become my favorite new band. But uh, the funny thing is they actually, <laughs> had a song they had a female singer but they had a song that was called jailbait and and this was in 1980 and it wasn't considered too wow. controversial for disney to have them playing like at their theme park singing the song so just to give you an idea of how the cultural mores have changed i mean even i was just gonna say even have you have you seen the song called the or this uh tv show called the in-betweeners no it's that um, it's, no. it's about the like British coming of age kids, like teenage kids in high school, basically. And, you know, there's all of these like pedophilia jokes, like laced throughout the, the series that, you know, like you see now and you're just like your jaw drops and you're like, oh my God, like, I can't believe they're using that as a source of humor. And like, that's just in such incredibly bad taste, but you know, it was like, whatever, you know, eight, 12 years ago. And I just, I think we've just become a lot more sensitive to that, both legally and in terms of our culture, you know, in the last 10, 20 years. There was a band that had a hit song in the nineties called the Cherry Poppin' Daddy. So I think it's definitely a little more <laughs> you know, moving in. I mean, I think, I think whatever this is, I mean, this, we could talk, this could be its own podcast. I mean, sexual, sexualization of the youth is, ridiculous but and as a, as a teacher it deals with that I, I run into that daily now and i mean we have kids dave you and i and, you know there's definitely a whole sub part of the world that is rife with that you know what I mean? that we don't need q anon to be hipping us to but you know it's right. definitely, it's, it's definitely a world out there that is something that I, 
finally is being dealt with. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I get on that subject too. I think it all goes back to how you approach it because obviously the Beatles said, I want to hold her hand and that could mean a, a bunch of things, you know, read into what you will, you know, that's really probably you know, the premise behind a lot of these types of songs. What you want to put into it later and how far you want to take it is your own spin. Yeah, absolutely. And for what it's worth as an owner of the Gene Simmons box set, the, the vault, I can confirm that yes, Ace basically just copped the vast majority of Eddie Van Halen's solo on the song. You know, it's nice. pr it's almost note for note. So, um, you know, uh, nothing wrong with, with stealing if you're going to steal from one of the best. Right, exactly. And uh, next up is the other song that Gene uh, did a demo for with the Van Halen brothers, Got Love for Sale, which I was shocked to find the chorus in this song. The actual lyric is, Have Love Will Travel, Got Love for Sale. I never heard it that way before. Um, so Mike, your thoughts about this one? A uh, question then, but before I even, uh, you know, interject, what, what was your original interpretation of what that lyric would have been? I thought they were saying got love for sale, but just like saying it, uh, you um, know, in, you know, got love for sale, you know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I, I mean, again, either way, you know, we didn't have lyric sheets with some of these records and you had to, you know, interpret it for yourself. Um, I, I think it's it's one it's some people might call it a sleeper track. Uh, some some people call it, you know you know filler, but I I like the song. I think it's catchy. Um, I think it's you know, almost like again like we always say with these songs. There's a lot of Beatles influence. Like I, I could hear the Beatles saying you know have love travel you know and you know like yeah. John Lennon type of voice for sure. Um, but I think it's interesting too um, that. Um, Around this time, I, I, no, as a matter of fact, later Gene Simmons was interviewed in Guitar Player Magazine in 1979, and he referenced like a bass sound. And he was basically saying that when you play bass in a live situation, if you're using like a, a Fender type bass and like an acoustic, you know, brand amp in, in a live venue, you're lost. Like you, you need to have something more than that. And I think that's why he tended to, you know, again, John could probably, you know, jump in on this too. Uh, when you, Gene tended to play like you know Gibson basses or basses that had like a Gibson type pickup pickup in in the thing, and he would play through Ampeg amps and it had like a fuller sound. But when it comes to this record, a lot of the bass lines on these on on these songs had that sort of single coil Fender bass sound, and this is one of those examples where it's almost I wouldn't say slapping and popping, but it's 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 punchy, and more so than mm -hmm. any other record they've done before. Uh, but to that you know bottom line to that is. Obviously, they seem to be branching out and experimenting with tones. I don't think that's something that Gene would necessarily admit to, uh, because I necessarily—I really don't think the guy cares. He just figures if there's bass in the track, I'm good. Um, again, great tune. It's interesting. It's got a classic A solo. That like staccato solo just like, holds you on until you know. And then it, it delves in and plays you know typical A licks that are so great. Um, again, as a, as a band composition, everybody did their part, and it shows in the final product. Yeah, it's a well-crafted song. Uh, I like what you. Yeah, I agree with you about the bass. I I refer to that as being trebly uh, rather than punchy. Yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's a little, little bit. I mean, I don't think it's actually high end, but it's definitely sort of like a. I don't think he's playing it higher up in the fret, but it's definitely a lot um, mixed more into the forefront, not as deep bass. That's um, that's interesting what you say about Fender and Gibsons. I've always hated Fender basses, and I've only liked Gibsons. Um, and I always thought because they had a better tone. Um, so I never even thought about it in terms of their choices, but based genius. 
What did Gene use this Gibson, right? Doesn't he? They were endorsed by Gibson, I think, yeah. even on back this album. They said, you know, Kiss uses Gibson drone or Gibson guitars and programs because they want the best. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that's about the time that they started to suck, though, actually, especially the basses. They started to get be made in Japan be a little more gimmicky. But yeah, I definitely got to the... More like the 79, yeah. 80s basses, not the whatever they had prior. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I, it's a well-crafted song. I don't have. I have nothing bad to say about it. Yeah, it's. I mean, the bass definitely cuts through. It's uh, to me. It, it's you know lyrically, Gene is is really into writing about the relationship between the band and the fans, especially the female fans on this album, and it's really um, it's about the commoditization, if you will, of lust or love or obsession, right. Uh, the mm-hmm. whole idea about you, you see my face, you read my name in the magazine, you know, and, and I'm all you can think about. At the time this was being done, Kiss were literally getting letters from teenage girls that were saying things like, if, here's my number. If you don't call me within 24 hours of getting this letter, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> I mean, you know. Well, let's hope eventually this podcast will lead to that for us. Right. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that responsibility now. <laughs> so, so you know, it's interesting. They never played the song live. No, it's definitely it's definitely something. It's like Mike called it, for the sleeper track. It's a well-crafted song. I don't think it stands out as like something that makes me want to... Um, you know, listen, to, you know, it's it's one of those songs that I'm like, OK, well, this is good. And then the next song I'm going to really like, it. you know, what I mean? so it's I don't well, it's it. all it's also a challenging song to play when it comes into the pre-chorus. You got that. Oh, that like the interplay in those guitars, that that's a hard thing to hold down in a live situation. So no wonder mm-hmm. I suspect they probably never even tried to play it live. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Next up is the song that they have played live more than any other song from this album, and that's not even including all the times Ace has played it as a solo act. Um, arguably the definitive Ace Frehley song with perhaps his greatest guitar solo ever, his vocal debut. Um, this <laughs> is a song that he, you know, again, the best Kiss songs always seem to take at least a, a spark from real life. And Ace almost got himself electrocuted on the Rock and Roll Over tour when he uh, was playing, you know, uh, walking down the staircase. It wasn't properly grounded. Uh, He got an electric shock. It knocked him out. They delayed the concert. He finished it, even though he didn't have any feeling in his hands. Um, And in much the same way that Kiss usually takes the piss out of serious subjects by sexualizing them uh you know it's cold gin time again because it keeps you together instead of it tearing you apart and ace actually wants to be shocked because he's you know that's that's what he is expecting to get from the unnamed uh female in this song amazing solo um interesting fact about this song they say he recorded it in the studio with the lights out lying down uh now, I've read two different things. I've read that he did it lying down on his back, and I've also read that he did it on his stomach because he he liked the extra pressure on his chest. Yeah, uh, I've heard both as well. So I don't know which, which one he did, but uh, Mike, you have played this song and this solo many a time, so let's start with you. Well, I mean, you know, from my perspective, having played, you know, the Ace 
Ace Frehley and several Kiss tribute bands. Um, you know, it, this song means a lot to me because it's really just if there's a song that you want to play as Ace in a Kiss tribute band, this is the one. This is like your moment. Um, again, to think of it this way, I mean, granted, Ace has written so many other songs uh, that, that were on previous Kiss albums, we never sang them. What a great intro as an artist and a vocalist, you know, to, to make this your debut on a Kiss record. I mean, it really, it's the quintessential Ace. It's got the sense of humor. It's like you said, it's, it's kind of turns around, you know, the phrase, you know, like, you know, grand, yes, I'm the guy that got shocked, but, you know, come on, shock me. Make me feel better. You know, I mean, that's that's just a classic, clever ace that, you know, I don't think he gets credit enough for. Um, you know, song structure is great. It's got a great, you know, verse. It's got a great pre-chorus. And the chorus is so catchy. Um, and that solo is just amazing. I mean, it, again, we've talked about this before. He's really a blues-influenced player. I mean, he's basically doing, like, Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton licks. But you wouldn't know it because it's, the solo itself just sings itself. So... Yeah, you know, for any other guitar player to come up with a solo like that, you know, if you put a gun to their head, I don't think they could. But he's got such a great melodic sense. Never mind the fact that this became, you know, the focal point uh, for his live uh, concert solo, where he would, you know, do the smoking guitar, and you know, again, it was a perfect opportunity because previously he would do the solo over a song like Cold Gin um, that he had written, but he didn't necessarily sing. So, great entry for him to be become, you know, quote unquote, Ace Frehley lead guitar shock me. You know, what a great title that is. I want to be <laughs> a six-part, you know, title at some point. So, bravo to Ace. Great song and, you know, great entry into to his, you know, perspective in terms of being like a, a guitarist, singer, lead singer, uh, artist on his own at some point. I want to hear the conversation where you wind up getting shocked and thrown 20 feet to 30 feet, depending on which thing you've read. And delay the concert for 30 minutes and someone and then he goes out and plays with no feeling in his hand like who, who convinced him of that do you think that was like promotion do you think he convinced himself to do it i mean i'd be like i had a stroke i need to go to the doctor and it's like no, no, no let's play it is um it's it's my again i'm coming to this weird realization that love gun might be my favorite kiss album um because shock me again is one of those perfect songs you got i stole your love shock me his snarling vocal that almost sounds a little bit like he's drunk when he starts. Um, it's just a great, great song. There's, I got nothing wrong with it. It's, um, it's, it's cool. It's got, again, it's got that swagger that is coming into sort of how Kiss is at that point. Um, that it's like he's almost sort of flippantly delivering these lines that get this nice, you know, almost like feel for it. He's too cool for everybody else. Uh, the way that he's singing, like he's almost, he's not even particularly impassioned as he's singing it. It's more like, he's like, yeah, let me tell you this crazy story, you know, about this woman I met. You know, so I really love this song. It is really a great, one of my favorite this songs. Yeah, there's a cool kind of laid back, laconic thing happening yeah. with the vocal. Um, even, huh. even, you know, like talking about the lyrics, you know, the, the whole line, um, we can come together, you know, is, I mean, there was this weird obsession with simultaneous orgasms during sex in the seventies, but for, yeah. <laughs> for, uh, Ace to kind of do a little play upon, you know, the Beatles song right. too, I think we can come together. Um, you know, this, the solo is so brilliant. I mean, the phrasing of it is mm -hmm. just is so amazing i i listening to the album today i gotta say this might be my favorite kiss album in terms of aces solos 
You know, I, I think mm -hmm. out of all six of the first original albums, I mean, this is the one in which his soloing is more melodic, more like a part, an integral part of the songs. It, it just like in practically every song here, it gives the gives the song so much more depth. And, you know, like he's really taking chances and going to interesting places. And he always lands perfectly on his feet at the ends of the solos. I mean, in a way that that, you know, is just just like, you know, your jaw drops, basically. Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, this speaks to the concept of for a while he was considered someone that they were going to, you know, that wasn't pulling his weight in the band. And yet this album, he seems to be at his prime, you know. Yeah, no, uh, Paul complains about both Peter and Ace during Rock and Roll Over and Love Gun. And yet it does seem, you know, that both of them are giving their all, you know, whether or not it what it took to get that out of them, who knows. But the end result, you really can't argue with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, that's, that's interesting to think about. Was it like, I mean, cause this is the last album that all four played together on, right? Anton Fig comes in next, um, to do, uh, studio drums or whatever, or, you know, yes. session musician. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. All right. Um, next up tomorrow and tonight, which to me, you know, Paul has said that this was his failed attempt to try to write, another rock and roll all night. Um, <clears throat> the band hardly ever plays this song live. Uh, to me, I think it's kind of a, a gem. You know, I think he undersells this song by a mile. I think it's a lot better than he thinks it is. And it has probably my favorite lyric on the entire album, which is, uh, you know, a rock lyric that in one sentence basically destroys the three major pillars of Western civilization. Listening to your teacher, bosses, and your preacher ain't never done nobody good. You can't argue with that. And at once he tears down education, work, <laughs> and all religion. <laughs> all right. So. Um, go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Well, yeah, to that point, Dave, it's, it's yeah, I think the point behind uh, every Kiss performance live is it's the ultimate escape. Like you don't want to have to think about those things. And he's basically saying that you know, forget about those things. You have a good time with us. We're here. We've got ninety minutes together. Let's make this you know the best of it that we can. So you know, maybe that's where he was going with that. You know, who knows? Um, it's a catchy tune, but again, you know, it, it, I, I found it interesting that he compared it to Rock and Roll Night because I never really picked up on that you know, connection. I thought of it just like you know, a catchy tune. Uh, again, in the Beatles vein that they're, that they're so good at, um, you know, but I, 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 again, I've done the research too. And I, I, you know, even though this song was on a live quote unquote, you know, live too, um, suppose that was recorded as a soundtrack. I, and I've done some research too. I don't think they ever really played it live other than, you know, the soundtrack for a live too. Um, it, it, you know, it could be a great song live, I, you know, we'll probably never know. Uh, but also in terms of research, I think um, in terms of the background vocals, one there was a male background vocal on the record, uh, and I forget the guy's name. See if I can uh, make some notes on this. Uh, yes, Ray Simpson uh, was one of the background vocalists on this record. He was uh, he replaced the original quote unquote cop that was in the Village People, ah, uh, okay. who I think were also signed to Casablanca Records. Right. Uh, but then also the female voice was someone named Tasha Thomas. Um, and she uh, also had a, interestingly enough, she had a song that was her only hit that was 
shoot me with your love, which is interesting too, because we're talking about love gun, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. So, great tie in. Uh, but like those voices you hear are those two people. Um, and, and, and as a matter of fact, Ray Simpson, uh, he was in the movie, um, thank God it's Friday, okay. uh, which was, you know, it's featured, you know, village people, but you know, good song, you know, Paul, Paul's never written, you know, a bad song. Um, but from my perspective, I, I just wonder, it sounds like it, it's similar to me to, uh, it's all right on the Paul Stanley 70 solo record, because it sounds like one of those Keith Richards open G tuning songs. Like it doesn't sound like something you would play on a, you know. 440 normal standard tuning guitar. Okay. So somebody's playing an open tuning on this record, I would guess. But also, too, with the A solo, we've talked about the, you know, the minor pentatonic, major pentatonic. Th this solo, my guess is it's Ace playing the solo in this record, but he does that kind of blues note where it's, you're not really playing minor or major. Mm -hmm. And it's just clever because he's got that bluesy bend that it just weaves in between major and minor. Yeah, but it works with the track, and it's a fantastic solo on what is really essentially a good Paul Stanley song. Absolutely. And next up is a great Paul Stanley song. Love Gun. Concert staple. Um, song that they have played 2,025 times since it came up on this album. Uh, John, you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah, it's, um, again, probably it's the groove. That riff is, you know, tighter than a mosquito's bum, like I said last time about... Um, the other song I was talking about, I mean, the, the riff is, is there's nothing wrong with that riff. There's nothing wrong with that, this song. I mean, it's um, kind of ridiculous because it's, uh, you know, it's basically a song about his dick, but it's still a great, you know, I, I love the, I, I um, it's again got that weird, that swagger that they're sort of coming into with, um, from, you know what I mean? That, that has that, as you said, Mike, that sort of behind the beat feel to it. Um, they that, the great sing-along chorus you know, that is uh, fantastic. Um, there's really, there's nothing I can find wrong with this song at all. Um, it's, again, one of my favorite Kiss songs, which is, I never really put that all together, um, that Love Gun holds so many of my favorite Kiss songs. Mike, what do you think? I, again, it's, I mean, if there's an ultimate Paul Stanley song, uh, this would be one of them. I think you know, the delivery is fantastic. And the fact that he claims, you know, he, he wrote it, I think, uh, flying to Japan and had the idea in his head. And once he landed, he put it down on demo and said, okay, I've got it. And here we go. Um, you know, again, you know, we've all worked on songs that you labor over and you're thinking, okay, it's not, it's not where it is. And you work at it and you work at it, but sometimes the best songs are the ones that just come to you lickety split. And I would imagine this is one of those, but again, how finely tuned could you be at that point after doing you know five studio records and playing multiple multiple you know live shows to know in your gut what is going to be a good song? Um, no wonder they played as much as they did. And I think this is also uh, from the beginning of that tour uh, you know, to this day that they played it live. Um, but I also I think last time we spoke um, about rock and roll, we spoke we spoke about, about Binky Phillips. I read an interview with Binky where he said that. Uh, there was a drummer that uh, Paul brought into the studio for the demo of this song. And I think his name was Steve Korf. Okay. Steve was the drummer in The Planets, who, you know, obviously, you know, Binky played in The Planets as well. And what Binky said in, in the interview that I read and saw was um, Binky was around the time they were doing the demo, 
And Paul said, hey, I've got this idea for a song, um, but I really don't have anything for the bass line. You know, what do you think you know, should work there? And you know, if you believe everything you read, uh, Binky said, I, I would try this, which became like the um, counterpoint, you know, descending bass line for the ascending guitar chord, you know, change in the verse. Mm. So, you know, whether or not, uh, Binky never really said that, you know, he thinks that what is on the demo is is Binky playing bass. Maybe Paul re-recorded it. If you look at the Kiss box set, the only people on the, on the track are, you know, uh, Steve and Paul. Uh, but, you know, maybe, you know, at the same time, like you can't do two things at once. Maybe you need some other person in the room to be able to come up with something else. But again, no matter who created it, it's a great song. It's a great uh, chord structure. It's a great counterpoint bass line. Um, but also, too, uh, when it comes to, you know, friends and people that, you know, that were involved with the band at the time, uh, the solo, uh, there was a guitar player named Pepe Castro who was in a band called the Blue Magoos. And there was a song uh, that the Blue Magoos had played. It was called We Ain't Got Nothing Yet. If you listen to the guitar solo in that song, it's got that sort of building, you know, a solo, which also Johnny Winter did as well. Um, but it, again, uh, supposedly uh, Pepe and Ace were friends before they were, you know, in, in, in their bands that, that they were known for. And uh, I don't know if it was, you know, I think Pepe might have, you know, taught Ace like a chord or something. It, it, basically, they, they learned how to play together. Uh, um, so whether or not it was a direct influence on Ace for this solo, if you listen to that solo on the Blue Magoo's track, you'll say, okay, all right, there, there's something to that. What to me, what's so classic about the solo? I mean, you know, yes, the the ascending pentatonic part of it is is great and perfect to go over that riff. Um, but to me, what works about it really is the the what he does once he gets to the top of that, uh, you know, that ascending run. And it, he, I mean, basically it is, to me, it is the sonic equivalent of the love gun going off, shall we say, metaphorically speaking. Uh, and, yes. and lots of other guitarists, lots of other Kiss guitarists, in fact, I would say every other Kiss guitarist that has had to play that song live has never been able to pull that part off with the same perfect finesse that Ace does every time. No, and having seen him play, you know, live up close, you know, I've, I've been front row at so many of his shows. You can't even—it's not even funny. But uh, when he when he goes for that solo, it's like like something on, like a typewriter. It's like a it's like a machine gun. It's just how how can you do that many upstrokes and downstrokes that thoroughly and that and execute it that way? I, I to this to, to this day, I I can't do that. I've tried. Yeah, <laughs> I try to do everything the guy does, and I've I've come pretty darn close to some stuff. But that's one of the ones where, you know. Hats off, Ace. You, you, you know that—that's your your stamp on it. And you've got it. Yeah. Now, lyrically, it does take a lot from the song by Albert King, "The Hunter." Um, just to read you a little bit of lyrics from that, uh, they call me the Hunter. That's my name. A pretty woman like you is my only game. I bought me a love gun just the other day, and I aim to aim it your way. Ain't no use to hide. Ain't nowhere to run because I've got you in the sights of my love gun, right? Um, so obviously it owes a little bit to that. I would argue that it probably owes a little bit to the John Lee Hooker song, Boom Boom. Uh, you know, I've got you in my sights, baby. Um, yeah, I'm going to shoot you down. Um, yeah, the whole penis as weapon metaphor um which actually you know the, the other the other funny thing about this song is lyrically the line 
girl, I can make you feel okay. Which seems like a low bar. Um, you know, like a, a glass of water and an I aspirin agree. might make her feel okay. I mean, <laughs> it does seem like we could shoot for a little, a little more than that. But, uh, you know, the, the other aspect of the song being a concert staple is that it, the, the raps that Paul Stanley has done over all the years that they have been playing it have uh, changed yeah. and evolved uh, quite a bit. And you could actually probably do an entire podcast just on those raps and how they became sort of progressively explicit during the 80s. And, uh, you know, and now they've, they've kind of done away with that now that they're a little bit more in a family-oriented position of their career. But um, my favorite one, uh, I have to say, uh, had to do with, I, I want to say it was right around Dynasty, where uh, he, he talks about crossing the Canadian border, you know, and they say, and, and, the, and the border guard says, you got any uh, weapons with you there, boy? You know, are you, are you packing a pistol? What, what are you, some kind of hunter? And he goes, I, I said, I might say, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, just, or I said, you might say, you know, I mean, it's just, there's, there is such a great, um, I don't, I, I don't even know how, how, how to explain it, but the, the, the patter and the banter that's been associated with this song live over, over time it has just made this song that much more special and important in the Kiss world. Mm -hmm. And again, too, you, you, despite you know what you think of, of the lyrics, you know, or the lyric content. I mean, it's a great melody, and it's so it's such a song you can sing along to, um, and the audience it buys into it straight away. You know? Oh yeah, it's, oh yeah, yeah. One of the few Kiss songs that uses a minor chord that prominently too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, oh, yeah. Because, uh, to that point, um, let, let's let's talk about this quickly. Um, if you listen to on uh, the, uh, the you know the remaster version of uh, Love Gun uh, on CD, uh, there are a couple. There's like the the writing demo, and there's also the uh, you know the the demo demo that he did. Um, but when the, the people that have worked with Paul have always said that he plays guitar in a unique kind of way, where it's kind of like almost like a, a symphony sort of coming out of his hands. Mm. And when you listen to the way he plays an E minor chord, it's it's almost sort of drawn out in a way where you hear all the notes and it's sort of ragged, but it's also graceful in a way. And you don't, you know, any guitar player that I worked with, you know, we're always, you know, at least in terms of the people that I worked with, I'll say this, we're always focused on the fact that, you know, how well can I execute this chord? Is it going to be in tune? Is it going to be, you know, whatever it is. But with Paul, he, he definitely you know, rides both sides of that ragged, but graceful uh, guitar playing that is, so Paul Stanley. Um, well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just listening to that before the podcast. And there is what struck me about it is he's playing these three note, rather highly voiced chords, and he's applying an equal amount of vibrato to every single note in that chord, which almost yeah. makes it sound like he's playing it with an ebo or something, but he's not. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, that, that's amazing. And you can tell he's playing it through like a practice amp, which is basically like a 5-watt amp that has no sustain. It's not a cranked 100-watt Marshall, but he's getting that much sustain out of you know what is essentially you know a bedroom amp. Um, I, I, again, it, he's one of the ultimate rhythm guitar players, and people have always asked me that you know that we, when I talk about you know playing guitar, 
people say, wouldn't it be great to play with Ace Frehley? Wouldn't you really love to you know, have a good time with that? And I, I said, well, yeah, I would. I wouldn't, you know, not that I would have a, a bad time with it, but the ultimate thing for me as a guitar player, if you want to call it you know, lead guitar playing, is I would love to play with like a guy like Paul Stanley or Keith Richards to know what really good rhythm guitar playing is all about and how to work around that. You know, to me, that would be something that I'd love to experience. And I think this is a, the classic example of how great Paul Stanley is as a guitar player, period, but also as just a quote-unquote rhythm guitar player. One last note, they had to bring in a ringer drummer, supposedly a studio musician, to overdub the bass drum on this song because Peter was not able to play part of the the song, at least in the studio. Obviously, he was playing it live on the tour. He was wow. dropping a beat, right, or something? What was the issue? I don't know the specific... Something about a bass pattern, bass drum pattern yeah, he was having trouble with. Yeah, play the bass pattern. I knew that, yeah. Yeah. All, All right, well, there you go. Love Gun. There you go. The nice. actual Love Gun... Yes, the album we should mention came with a cardboard cutout actual Love Gun, and then I guess in the remaster, it's, what, a magnet? Yes, it says yes. bang. Yeah. Ah, nice. <laughs> if, if that magnet is on your refrigerator, then you are not a true Kiss fan. <laughs> um, hey, look, it also came with the merchandise order form, you know? Right, yeah. Yes. You think if I send in uh, this thing uh, to Wooden Hills, I'd get a t-shirt in the mail? Well, you, you have a story about that. Didn't you, like, do that years after it should have worked and somebody's mother called them up and they actually, like, went into the warehouse and sent the stuff? <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. I, I, this is years later. This is after I moved to California. I, I looked at the address and I thought, well, I live in the valley, so I, I can go over to Canoga Park, no problem. So I decided to drive by the warehouse and, you know, there's no Kiss merchandise there. I can verify. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I thought, Dave, it was you that had uh, wanted to uh, join the Kiss Army and... Um, you sent in your $5, you know, big money back then, and they didn't respond. I thought your mom uh, wrote them a letter. And no, negotiated. it wasn't. I'm telling you, you told me the story about somebody else. Maybe it was Frank. Maybe it was... Uh... Yeah, maybe it was Rich. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. There's Somebody had that experience, whoever it is at this point, I don't recall. But um, hey, you know, people you know, want their money's worth, you know? That's right. That's right. So uh, moving on, the one Peter Chris song on this album before before i mention get into the song i i think the seeds of the fact that that we get to solo albums uh are on mm. this album because for the first time everybody's writing their own songs nobody's using outside partners aside from stan pedridge on this song uh we're about to talk about and you know ace is playing bass on uh his song and gene's playing some guitar on some of his songs and it's almost like, you know, they, these guys are, are bringing these songs highly demoed, almost completely done to the band. And then the band is putting their mark on them. But nobody's nobody's co-writing together at this point. Mm, yeah, good point. Well, they seem to they seem to have come into their own. I mean, a lot of times you see bands write a first album that has a bunch of great stuff on them. And the second album is terrible. Kiss keeps growing in how they're writing. You know what I mean? They seem to get better and better in terms of release, and maybe some of it is production. But um, it's one of those things I'm always impressed by is bands keep coming up with, you know, great stuff album after album. Right. So the Peter Chris song, Hooligan. Uh, Peter Chris grew up in Brooklyn, had kind of a rough uh, upbringing, was actually a gang member, member of the Phantom Lords. Uh, so there's a little bit of kernel of truth to this one as well. He probably was somewhat of 
a hooligan. And, uh, you know, this song, it's interesting. They did play it live a bit. Uh, they played it live like 14 times uh, on the tour, I believe. And, uh, you know, some interesting lyrics, too. There's, there's, there's a little bit of uh, slightly veiled drug reference on this one, right? I went down to the candy store. If I had a nickel, I'd buy some more. I mean, typically the drug dealer at this period of time in the 70s might have been referred to as the candy man, a nickel, uh, you know, as a, a nickel bag for what you get for $5 or whatever, five ounces or whatever. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was... It I was, wasn't buying drugs back in the 70s. Right. I wasn't. I, but But it's the kind of plausible deniability lyric that could have skated by Gene and Paul's watchful eye and they just barely, you know, just barely got through. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'll be perfectly honest, I'm not that much of a fan of the song. It kind of, uh, it is what I would consider the only filler on it, or the only sort of filler song on it, but I, you know, you guys are better experts in terms of like that kind of stuff, but I, I just don't, I just, to put it plainly, I just don't like the song. Mike, I see you have a guitar there. Do you want to play something? Well, I'll get to why I broke out the guitar in this one. But I, I think what you know, granted, it could be also it could be seen as filler. But it, the fact that you have an album where you have four guys that are in the group, and like you had mentioned, that you know, there's really no co-writes on this on this on this record. Um, but they all have you know at least you know a song or two that they're going to contribute to the record, and it was accepted and recorded. You know, good for them. Um, but, there are songs like this, and there are also songs that are on, on the Peter Chris solo album where it's autobiographical. And it's, it's great that, you know, if you're going to write a song and it's going to be on a record, you know, much like, you know, the Ace Frehley thing with Shock Me, that's something that happened to him. I think Ace and Peter are the types of guys that would write a song that really came from the heart and meant something to them. You know, I don't think they're going to, you know, put something, you know, pen to paper and it's not going to be important, you know, in terms of their presentation. Um, you think of it what you will in terms of the song, but I do find it interesting, too, that. When it comes to Peter Chris writing songs, a lot of these songs, I love to know how far back they go. Like if you wrote this with Stan Penridge, was that in '72? Or, you know, was that in the Chelsea area? What was going era? What was going on there? Yeah. But it seems like you know they had their go-to guys that they worked with. You know, like Steve Cornell, who was in Wicked Lester, co-wrote some of the songs that were on Dress to Kill. Um, obviously they have you know, they're they're working ways in terms of writing a song. But if you're going to have a song like this, and Peter's going to have a song in the record, then why not make it a story about yourself and, you know, be what you will. Um, but again, I know they played it live and it's interesting too, because you watch them play the song live. Um, you know, Ace is playing in standard tuning, you know, no capos or anything, but Paul's doing the thing with the capo and you got that wonderful chord. It's almost like a Pete Townsend chord. Let me get my standby switch off here. Okay. Trying to be quiet. Rare moment, I'll be quiet. Um, but you got that. You know, those chords there make, Adds so much foundation to you know to what's going on there. Mm. Um, you, you know what I mean? It, it's like you could tell that you know they they again come from that humble pie era, Peter Frampton, and Steve Marriott type type of guitar playing where somebody's got to do something low, somebody's got to do something high, and it's got to be interesting. You can't just have all the guys playing the same chords at the same time. And you know maybe they weren't 100 behind. Okay, this is Peter's song. I got to play on this, but at least they thought enough to say let's make it as interesting and as uh, intricate and, and, and clever as we possibly can. Uh, and again, that that's a true band. When you when you, when you can, when you've got somebody that comes in, and you might not be getting along with the guy, but you can give it your all and make their song as good as it needs to be. Then that's a true band. And I, I think I think that's a good point because you know 
Gene and Paul are doing tons of tight harmony vocals on this song. Uh, you know, that they didn't, obviously, they didn't have to put that in there, but it's an integral part of the song. Ace is doing some great stuff on the lead, especially at the outro when he goes to do that kind of octave part, that din din yeah. You know, I mean, that's like almost a whole, it almost becomes a whole other section of the song at that point because it changes so much with that lead on top of it that, you yeah. know, it, it, it keeps your interest in the song. Like, you know, if there's one difference between rock and roll over and Love Gun, you know, even though all these songs fade out, there's all kinds mm -hmm. of interesting stuff happening that, with Ace's guitar and the vocals and the call and response so that you don't feel like, oh, they're just fading out, you know, at the, repeating the chorus mm -hmm. ad infinitum like you sometimes feel on Rock and Roll Over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to that point on the outro thing, um, you know, it, the easiest thing to do would be to, to phone it in and just play some licks over, you know, a vocal and try to not step on the vocal. But Ace's melody becomes in, in such a, you know, a a true part of the song. I remember, you know, we talked about the guy played in Kiss tribute bands. I remember one of the early rehearsals that I had, we, we used to invite friends down. This is before we even played shows. We'd invite people down to the rehearsal space to give them, like, you know, a, pre a preview show. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we would win their approval and we'd be able to play live. But I remember we played Hooligan um, at some point. One of my friends, um, we played Hooligan. And he said, hey, you didn't play the, the solo at the end of Hooligan. That's one of the best parts of the song. And I, I don't know if it escaped me or I just forgot about it, but then he was right. It's a key part of the song, and it, it ends the song. It puts punctuation to what is a great song uh, from Peter's perspective. Um, and without it, something's missing. Yeah, and as you pointed out to me one time, I, I believe, Mike, the lyric dropped out of school at 22, is a funny line because you got to go. What were you in trade tech college or college? I mean, that's that's actually not that early to drop out of school right, that's if college, you're yeah. if you're a hooligan. But all right, you know. Yeah, right, yeah. I went to community college for five long years. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, right. I got this darn degree, then I quit. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So so next up is a song that I think answers the question. What if it had been up to Gene Simmons to write a song like God of Thunder? What would he have come up with on his own? And you you have a song called Almost Human um, that, you know, is is similar to God of Thunder, but it sort of takes it from a little bit, little bit less of the larger than life God-like, uh, you know, theatricality of Destroyer and makes it more of kind of a horror movie, right? You know, the, the moon is full and he's going to change and she's going to scream and, and, you know, he's some kind of vampire werewolf monster that's pursuing his prey. So uh, thoughts about that, John? Yeah, that's, uh, again, one of my favorite songs of Kiss of all time. It's the... Um... The swagger, again, that swagger that I'm talking about, it's almost like there's, I think, are there conga drums in it? Because it sounds like there should be. Yeah, there, uh, the there's song. definitely like some overdubbed, I think you're right, I think it's yeah. congas. There's a groove there to the song yeah. that that actually mm -hmm. Kiss doesn't really hit again until The Jungle on Carnival of Souls has kind of a yeah, similar it, groove. It's an awesome groove, but it also doesn't lose its rock, uh, you know, it's 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 feeling it's a it's a punch to the face to me i love it i mean i just love that like you know aces parts on top and all that kind of stuff i mean it's really flows really well it feels you know groovy but also mysterious and scary at the same time a, gr um, a great 
noise solo from Ace that like constantly right. pans around your headphones back and forth. But but right. boy, he's just you know maybe the greatest Ace noise solo. I don't know. <laughs> I I again, it's one of my favorite songs by them. I I almost was when it, it only clocks in it. I the, the whole I wound up clicking back over and over again on my uh, listening to it. Because um, and it only clocks in at like two minutes fifty seconds, so I think it's like one of the short. It is the shortest song on the album. Now that I'm looking at it, um, so I kept was I wanted it to go on longer. I mean, I just love the groove to it, the way that Gene sings. I mean, there's a nice feel to it, great delivery. I got no no problems with the song. It's one of my favorites. Mike, yeah, for me, it, it, it's you know straight away like we hear that riff. It's just so menacing. It, it yeah. is almost like you know a God's a th- or God of Thunder in A, you know? but uh, it's it's a great riff. And I think again we mentioned I think this is one of the tracks where, he's, where, where Gene's playing a guitar in it, right? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but but I love the fact too how you have like the menacing you know demon like you know vocal delivery for the the main lyric. When it comes to the chorus, it's like this. It's like this pleasant little you know you know counterpoint to you know what's really uh, you know a, a menacing vocal delivery. Uh, but also, too, when it comes to the you know, the, the noise solo with Ace, you know, it, this is one of those songs where you really don't hear Ace playing with, you know, a whammy bar or a tremolo bar. Um, you know, was that part of, you know, Ace's influence of, you know, Jimi Hendrix? Or was it like thinking, okay, well, we got the Van Halen guys around and they're doing this kind of stuff. Maybe I should do some more of that now. You know, who knows? Uh, but I think he didn't really, you know, achieve that again until uh, I think the solo for um, X-Ray Eyes on Dynasty, where it was something similar, where it was like a... You know, it wasn't necessarily like a melodic solo, but it was interesting. It was kind of like, you know, I'm, I've got a canvas here. I'm going to throw this at what I think about the song and, you know, whether or not it's a, whether or not it's a melodic solo, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but again, it worked for the song. Um, and, you know, again, it was <laughs> interesting when you think about how many songs they could have recorded for this album. Uh, there are probably tons that they didn't do, but uh, I'm glad that this one's on the record. Yeah. Yeah, now there was a movie that came out in 1974, an Italian kind of uh, crime police drama called Almost Human. So you yeah, wonder. think that's where he got his uh, inspiration from? Possibly, you know, just throwing it out there as a possibility. Yeah, I mean, again, I love it because it, it speaks to that whole conceptual idea that Kiss is getting at that I always loved about them, about their individual characters, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and this album, they really um, played that up. I mean, they definitely, you know, this, you know, star child, the, the lover and the, you know, the demon and things like that. And this is a definite demon song. For sure. Which is also a great segue into when you got the record, you got this little insert and you could buy the Kiss uh, comic. Right. Marvel comic book, right? So, you know, the sight of blood. So, you know, speaking of comic book heroes, you know, this was, you know, the introduction of the first Kiss Marvel special comic book, uh, which apparently, uh, from what I've read, and you guys can probably verify for me, uh, it was supposedly the, the biggest seller in Marvel's history. Is that still standing to this day, or was, has that been topped? It might have been topped, but it, I think you're right. At the time, it was uh, the biggest selling comic in Marvel history. And, okay. um, yeah, it's interesting. The guy that um, Steve Gerber, I believe, the guy that wrote uh, Howard the Duck was a big Kiss fan, New Yorker, and he had actually put Kiss in kind of like a small cameo appearance in a couple issues of Howard the Duck uh, prior to prior to this. That's how I met John Carson. We were, I was I had one of, a copy of one of those issues and 
he said, oh, you like comics? And I said, oh, yeah, it's, it's got Kiss in it. And he goes, oh, you like Kiss? And, you know, a friendship was born. So, um, You don't say it. All right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, definitely that was all coming to fruition in terms of the merchandising. And, you know, you can see it, too, on the cover. Um, they mm -hmm. used Ken Kelly again. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, the same artist as Destroyer, the, the kiss girls that are all sort of, you know, half passed out at their feet from, from their lust for, from these men. Right. Um, very Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, you'll notice the girls have similar faces because Ken had a girlfriend. So he, he basically had one face model for all the girls, wow. you know, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well done. It's a great, I mean, it's a great cover. I love Ken's stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. It's you know, uh -huh. and I you, you wish he would do more um, stuff. Uh, like he did something for I think the Norwegian Kiss Army that I have a print of where they're on. Um, it's Kiss as Vikings on like a Viking boat and stuff. But oh, wow. um, you did know. you see the McFarland Toys version of the Kiss uh, Love Gun cover? Have you ever seen that before? See it? I own it. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Sorry, man. My bad. Yeah, yeah. I don't like the way that Paul's done. I don't, that's really literally the way that I always think. I'm not gonna you know, lie. Paul is hard to capture. I, I have to say, not to get too yeah, far off topic here, image. but yeah. Migo just recently did the four Kiss figures, and I have to say, they all look pretty good, except, you know, Paul's face. He, he's got, like, a really hard-to-capture bone structure uh, that doesn't necessarily yeah. translate well to a small rubber head. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've got rubber head face. You great on this talk. You look great on a rubber head. Well, thanks. You know, thanks for the compliment. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Like Speaking of trying head. to capture the band in authentically, uh, we move on to a song that's all about trying to capture rock stars authentically, which is Plaster caster so for those of you who don't know in the 60s and 70s there were some groupies that were called the plaster casters who um would take plaster molds of the male rock stars appendages and then you know they would have something to remember them by and actually gene never had that done but he was apparently interested enough in the uh, practice that he wrote plaster caster yeah i can't believe somebody with a with a dick so erect, I mean, it just doesn't make any physical sense. So apparently, they tried the they tried it out on their girlfriends first. I mean, their boyfriends first before they, you know. Uh, okay. Oh yeah, I guess they were <laughs> practiced. Yeah. Yeah. I I like this. I mean, I like the song because it's kind of silly. You know what I mean? And, and it's a document of the time. I mean, it's it's not you know it's not a song I'm going to be like, hey, you want to hear about this band called Kiss? I'm going to play you this best song ever, and then I wouldn't pull that out. You know, so, but it's definitely like a, a fun song that speaks to the time um, of, you know, that's such a 70s song, you know, that there would be a groupie that goes around and put plasters on people's dick, dicks, <laughs> so to speak. So, yeah. Um, but again, it's not, you know, there's nothing really that speaks to me about it. It seems a little throwaway, but clever at the same time. Yeah, uh, think, Mike? For me, I think, you know, if, even if he never had the experience of working with with uh, Cynthia Plaster Caster, I think he captured the essence of what was going on there, but presents it in a way where you could actually, as a kid, you know, seven or eight-year-old kid, plays the record at home, and your mom or dad necessarily wouldn't immediately figure out that, hey, wait a minute, my son is listening to a song about, you know, 
sucks. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like, yeah, like, you know, it's not like, you know, we talked about last week making love. Like, oh, he's, he's making love all night long. Wasn't that nice? You know, you know, but either way, if, again, to not have firsthand experience, but, you know, write it from, let's say, like a fictional point of view, I think he captured it. Um, but if you're interested in, you know, what was involved with, you know, Cynthia's deal, there is a, a you know, um, a documentary that is not in the X-rated, you know, format that you can see. It's called a Plaster Caster, and she talks about, you know, her stories with working with people like Jimi Hendrix and blah blah blah. And um, you know, I, I, I think the sad point is, at some point, a lot of the uh, the sculptures, if you will, that she had, um, she donated those to uh, a, a museum, and I guess she she almost lost them for a while, and you know, she finally was able to regain those. Um, but you, you think like if that's your craft and that's what you you can focus in on the fact that the, that, that that disappears for a second is really kind of sad. Um, but that's, you know, that's probably the same for, you know, music or art or you know, any other types of you know, entertainment that, you know, if you let go of your material, then, you know, good luck getting it back. But supposedly she finally got that those sculptures back. But either way, uh, again, it, it's uh, when it comes to a musical standpoint with a song, it's a catchy song. It's a catchy melody. It's a catchy lyric. Um, and it's also a great A solo. Because he does the thing with like you know the major and minor pentatonic, um, and it's one of the few instances where Ace uh, recorded a solo through what is this, uh, basically like an organ speaker, Ooh. organ ha ha quote unquote, uh, uh, like a, a Leslie speaker, which is like a rotating baffle speaker. Mm. Uh, because I think the previous solo he did where he used a rotating baffle speaker was uh, "Lover All I Can" on "Dress to Kill." Okay, which kind of makes things pan around. If you if you might get in a way, and Dave, you and I've done this with Dean Fortune. If you mic it in a way, it's a really hypnotic type of sound, and I think that's something that Hendrix had done as well, and uh, it achieves that result. So when you listen to that solo, you go, why is it making me feel kind of nauseous? Well, that's <laughs> probably why, because you know, the sound is moving around in, you know, in your head in, in the stereo uh, field of the, of the record. Huh. You make an okay. interesting point, Mike, about the lyric, because especially the first verse, it's almost playful. Like, you could read... The lyrics to the entire first verse and and there's a, a line like my love is in her hands that can be taken metaphorically instead of literally <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you know and and it's almost like he's playing with the idea of like how much can i indirectly talk about the subject of this song and and still make it uh, something that is is something that is not completely obvious and on the nose and also, not to get too deep into the documentary, but, you know, there, there are complications. You know, my love is in her hands, and there's no more waiting. She understands. My love is perfection. You know, it, it's either it's going to happen now or it's not going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, you know, I've never been in that position. And, you know, obviously, you know, maybe Gene has with somebody else, but not necessarily with Cynthia Plaster-Caster. But I think he captured what's going on there. Absolutely. Now, the final closing song of the record, which... This was the third single from the album, surprisingly. After they put out Christine 16, it hit 25. Love Gun hit 61. And then, then she kissed me. Hit nothing in the, in the United States. The only, really? the only country that it charted at all is Australia, which I guess Australia, you know, they, they like Shandy too. They have a soft spot for Paul's songs, but man... Uh, a remake of the Phil Spector song, then, uh, you know, co-written co -written song, then He Kissed Me, rewritten from the male perspective. Um, thoughts? What would have been great if, is if they didn't gender swap it. Then 
that song. Ah. <laughs> that was what Joan, uh, what's her name? Joan Jett did that with the Beatles song. Didn't gender switch it. And um, that that's something that occurred to me. I actually don't mind it. I, and what's funny is hearing it reminds me of some of the other songs on the album. With like even Tomorrow and Tonight, that sort of like 60s pop, you know, sentiment. It almost, you can see, it's almost like this is where it came from. You know, yeah, it's a good point. Definitely, sort of a what's up? It's a good point. They were definitely reaching back to '60s Motown for some of the stuff. Yeah, I, I think, especially with a lot of the grooves in the album and the way that the songs have sort of like this is going to be our perfect three-minute pop song. You know what I mean? Um, the um, I, I I think it's an interesting thing to compare the rest of the album to. Um, I mean, there's so much stuff wrapped up in Phil Spector now that it's like I, I can't mm. listen to it without having all of the background stuff about Phil Spector popping into my uh, brain. You know what I mean? But yeah. you know, it's 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 kind of interesting. They sort of almost they do they try to recreate the wall of sound, but it's not really there. I mean, they don't get it. It's it's not you know. But it's still it's interesting. I I actually liked it. I liked it as sort of a nice reference point to the rest of the album. You know, it definitely sort of reminds me again of like uh christine 16 god love for sale tomorrow and tonight you know those songs yeah that are sort of more poppy i can see that so good what do you think mike um i think it's a you know, good way to let's say uh sort of you know close out a record if you will um you know it it is it an important song in their catalog probably not um but it, as you know as a kid, you know, at the time when this record, I didn't really discover them until Alive 2, but when I bought this probably in, you know, 78, 79, I listened to it, I thought, well, that seems different than the rest of the record. I'm not quite sure what this looks, what this means, and I remember looking at the songwriting credits, and it wasn't written by anyone who was in the band, I thought, you know, I, I showed her, I, I just didn't get what they were doing at the time, uh, but now that, you know, we see Paul Stanley doing his Soul Station stuff, you know, it, it's no surprise that this, this, this appeared on a Kiss record. Um, you know, I think... You know, in terms of, you know, we all know what it's like to, to record records and write songs and, you know, try to get things, you know, to be presentable on a record. You know, it takes a lot of effort to put, you know, to, to put into a song like this and, and present that on a record. You can't tell me that they didn't have X amount of songs that they have all written that could have been the last track on this record that might have, you know, knocked this one off the A-list in, in a way. That's an interesting call. I don't, why would they pick this song? That's kind of interesting. I, I don't know because you know you look, you look at the uh, the first you know Kiss release um, and they it, the versions of, of the first record that have Kiss in Time and didn't have Kiss in Time and it was pressured like you know to, like you know obviously playing on the Kiss theme was this like a, a repeat of that I don't know yeah you know, was it clever yeah, yeah but you know, did, it, did it work like, yeah. was management involved in making them do this you know what I mean that's sort of my thing although I mean there's times when you get I mean I remember getting obsessed with. Uh, Love Child by the Supremes and making my band like learn it, but I would never put it on an album. But I, you know what I mean? I, that's the that also brought you know because I was like, this is is you know sometimes you go down that rabbit hole and you get obsessed with the song and you realize all the things that are going on in it. But and then suddenly you're like, I want to learn this and I want us to figure it out. But again, it doesn't like you said, it doesn't uh, really stand the test of time. It's almost a little bit of a throwaway or more of like I said before, sort of a reference point for the rest of the album. I was just going to say, Paul Stanley has said, in hindsight, 
it was a song that needed to be redone like I Want to Hold Your Hand needs to be redone, as which is to say never, not at all. It was perfect originally, so we didn't really add much to it. Um, the one thing I'll say is that, you know, that three-note riff that essentially runs through the song, that, you know, that yeah. is catchy as hell. And you can you can find that, you know, I mean, it's essentially the same riff or same essential melodic idea as a blister in the sun, right? Uh, yeah. It's the same, you know, <laughs> yeah. Kiss Themselves goes back to essentially that same riff uh, with On the Eighth Day, On Lick It Up. Mm-hmm. That riff is essentially, you know, slightly modified, but it's the same, same general riff, right? Yeah, yeah, no, you're, for you're sure. right. That's do do do. Yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah, that totally works. So, all right, uh, let's sum up. Last thoughts about Love Gun. Uh, let me go first. It's a, I, I'm not to step on anybody. It's a weird how much I remember, or how much of all my a lot of my favorite Kiss songs are actually on this um, album. I think a lot of what I was listening to when I was growing up listening to Kiss was the live one and the live two. And a lot of the songs, you know what I mean? Because I just, to me, those live albums were sort of greatest hits albums. Um, so listening to the individual albums between them, um, I did, I, it's interesting to see that they're all organized, but they, they definitely hit like a, like a groove at this point. I mean, how, how far away are we from, um, disco kiss? Are we like two albums from Disco Kiss or one album from Disco Kiss? Well, there's a live right. two and the solo albums. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Then never mind. So they're probably pretty far from Disco Kiss. So, I, well, I wouldn't even say it's, I mean, obviously there, this, this is more informed by Motown, I think, than it is by anything else um, in terms of how the songs are written uh, with the grooves and that kind of stuff. Even though it's a rock album, it still feels kind of, funky and a little bit groovy and, and it's turning out that a lot of my favorite kiss songs are on it i didn't even realize it so sorry mike go ahead what do you think um i, I look at it this way you know in hindsight when you think about the fact that this is basically the last record they recorded as you know the original band uh you know together is pretty amazing um but if you can have you know let's say you know four hits or four songs that became live staples on one record that is essentially i think about 33 minutes long says quite a bit. You know, they were focused, they knew what they were doing, um, and they probably had limited time because we mentioned before they're recording multiple albums per year. Uh, you know, if you, if you, you know, just taking you know, us in terms of, you know, where we are in our lives, if you said, okay, put me on the road, play multiple shows, record albums, do promo, put on makeup every day, da, da, da. I mean, you know, the stamina that those guys had in those days was phenomenal. Right, right. Uh, six albums in three years, and then your sixth one being that good. I mean, my brain, like, just breaks at that. I mean, I can't imagine. Like, my sixth yeah. album at that point would have been garbage. That would have been <laughs> right. like no music machine, or you know what I mean. I mean, it would have been like, you know, it would have been like the the third uh, Creedence Clearwater album. You know what I mean? It just would have been awful. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of, I mean, I can't imagine that they kept at this. I mean, I, I think that speaks to Paul and Gene's drive. You know what I mean? They're constant, like practicing and wanting, you know, to succeed. But again, I don't think I would have it in me to write that many songs and then to be that good by the time you get to the end here, you know, yeah, I think it, it definitely honed in on their craft. But it's interesting too, when you think about the fact that, you know, they started out doing demos with Eddie Kramer and the, the original band essentially ended recording 
with Andy with Eddie Kramer. You know, so yeah, that's true. From, you know, back Full circle. Roots. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. You know, the, oh, yeah, yeah. the one aspect we haven't talked about with this album is that uh, there's always been kind of a relationship between punk rock and Kiss. And, you know, to the point where Joey Ramone saw one of Kiss's earliest club shows, I believe, at Coventry or uh, the Hotel Diplomat, and was just blown away, said it was the loudest thing he had ever heard. Um, so right about this time uh, that they are recording this album and Paul's coming up with the whole Love Gun idea, concept for the album and the song and the tour, uh, there's a new band on the scene that's making a lot of waves called the Sex Pistols. And Gene and Paul are definitely aware of these guys, and they're definitely digging the aesthetic, as Gene Simmons referred to it. You know, anything with the razor blade to the eyeball was an interesting aesthetic. Anything, you know, anything that pissed parents off and caught your attention and looked cool and different and wasn't, you know, hadn't been done before. Um, Kiss was digging, and Paul has said in interviews that in some ways, the, the whole idea of Love Gun was a little bit of a nod and a wink and a tip of the hat to the Sex Pistols. Hmm. Okay, wow, I never really thought about that because I, I this is that's one of my favorite things because I find I'm a big fan of uh, punk rock from that period, but I'm also a big fan of prog rock and heavy metal from that period, and it hmm. almost seems like a lot of those bands are sort of completely isolating. Uh, isolated hmm. from sort of the punk sound or you get, you know, situations where, I mean, musicians respect musicians. You know, that's sort of something that I've always uh, heard is that bands like, you know, are not limited to their own genres, you know, in terms of what they like. Um, so I, I guess now that you mentioned that, I guess I could totally see, you know, because I mean, Kiss to me was never a band that would have been somebody that, punk bands would have said these are the dinosaurs you know i mean they would have mm. kissed producing three minute songs they're fast they're loud there's maybe a couple of overdubs but to to put it in terms of that i would almost i mean again this is the argument that i mean kiss came up at the same times as the new york dolls um the, the joke that my friend says is if, if the new york dolls had practiced as much as kiss um every kid would have been wearing a dress that halloween in 77 instead of the kiss makeup and it's sort of um, so that's, yeah, so that's funny. I would not see Kiss being fearful of that sort of, you know, because a lot of the bands that, you know, like, uh, you know, The Who and Yes, and a lot of the prog rock bands were like, oh man, these guys are here to ruin us. And how can you like them? Because they're, you know, they're not cool. They're not, you know, they're not actual musicians. But in fact, they were, you know, I mean, the Ramones knew how to tune their instruments. They knew how to write songs. They knew how to create chords. So it's, you know, Joey understood in theory how to sing on key you know what i mean so it's i don't know that's yeah. really interesting i never even thought about that like yeah how much did they spend their time listening to that well i think gene and paul have always kind of tried to keep their ear to the ground and you know and at least be aware of what the the latest greatest new hip sound was that was coming up you know uh whether or not they wanted to imitate that you know sometimes they didn't sometimes they didn't but um, the best example of what you're talking about in terms of uh, the, the delineations between musicians and types of music uh, not really mattering to musicians in the same way it does to fans, I think, is I was working as a runner at Signet Sound Studios uh, when Branford Marcellus, you know, the jazz guy, was recording there. And uh, somebody mentioned to me uh, that they're 
their engineer, Rob Hunter, uh, to record this jazz album was actually uh, the drummer in the speed metal band Raven, who was referred to <laughs> as Wacko. And I, I was like, really? There, you know, he's a, he's recording. And I went into the studio and I said, so uh, you were you were wacko? And he goes, I still am. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think musicians respect other musicians no matter what they, you know, that's definitely something that as I play more, I mean, I'm sure that you run into this as well. You find yourself suddenly like going down some rabbit hole where you're like, I can't believe I really like this band, but boy, I really like this band, you know, or whatever. Um, because they're, you know, they write great songs. And I think too, when you, when you compare it to, uh, you know, the punk rock movement, if you will, um, Kiss has always had their ear to the ground, especially in terms of, you know, uh, English fans. Uh, mm. And good for them for doing that, because it really, when it comes down to, if you want to, you know, categorize punk, it's all about the attitude and the energy. You have an edge, you know, and what you do with that. And I think Kiss throughout their career through the 70s, at least up to the point of Dynasty, got a little more polished. They always had an edge on their records, and they never lost that. Maybe the punk thing might have had an influence um, for this record. You know, who's to say? But at the same time, John, you mentioned you know, the dinosaur bands, and I think you know there were, there's the prog rock stuff, which you know, again, I love bands like Yes and uh, ELP and you know that kind of stuff. It's interesting to hear that stuff, you know. But you know, I could see where you wouldn't want to compete with that in terms of being a punk rock band. But you take a band like the Stones. And not to take you know, out of the Kiss realm, but like you know, you listen to the album Some Girls. That's basically like a punk rock record, especially a song like Shattered. I mean, that's basically like a punk rock song. Mm -hmm. And in a way, Just it becomes their production of value. Yeah, yeah, it's like the ultimate punk rock song. That you know, it, it's almost like you know, Kiss doing their disco thing, if you want to call it disco. And I was made for loving you. The the Stones basically say, okay, we're we're gonna write a song called Shattered. We're probably hanging out in the same places that you know punk rockers are hanging out at. But okay, it'd be easy to write a song like that, and here we go, and it comes across as like a, you know, a gem of a version of a, of a punk song. Right. Yeah. I, but again, it's all about the edge and, and what you do with it. And if you know, if you're, if, again, if you're doing the same thing all the time, you're not listening to the things that are that are current and coming out as you're moving along, then you become old. You become a dinosaur. And Kiss never did that. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, Kiss always changed. Well, we could go on for days about this, but yeah, yeah, Kiss always changed with the times in terms of, you know, Dynasty having I Was Made for Loving You. This, if we're arguing that it had a bit of a punk sound to it, you know, they always they always change and adapt. And, you know, it, it, some people would call that selling out, but others would call it paying attention, you know, yeah, like getting new influences. Right. Yeah. Kiss put out their second live record. Kiss Alive 2, which we'll be talking about next week, and it also contained one half of, uh, one side rather, of original songs. Uh, also produced by Eddie Kramer, recorded at Soundchecks, and I would argue finally captured the energy of the band as a live band on new material in a way that they had been trying to do with Eddie Kramer all along. Huh, all right. So thanks for joining us, and we will see you for next week's Rock Album Analysts podcast, Kiss Alive 2. <laughs>